Would you join me please in Ephesians chapter 6? Ephesians chapter 6 tonight as we continue excavating Ephesians. Once again this week I'd like to read verses 10 through 18. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6 beginning in verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints." So leading up to the pieces which comprise the armor of God, we have spent five weeks discussing verses 10 through 13, along with the first statement there of verse 14 last week, stand therefore, and I'm not going to take the time to recap all that, all that we've covered so far in this section of scripture, but we must understand that there is a spiritual battle taking place. Now, we understand we're on the winning side tonight. Hallelujah. Christ has defeated sin, death, hell, the grave. He is all-powerful. He's defeated the devil. We know at the end of the book, we've read it, He wins. And Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. We understand all that. Hallelujah. What a joy to know we have victory. However, we still have this flesh while we live this life below. For the child of God, faith in Christ is the victory. We are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Greater is He that is in us than he that is in the world. And we can rejoice in all this and be happy about this. But our adversary, the devil, still walks around seeking whom he may devour. And we still live in this world which is filled with temptations and sin. And the truth is, there are times when our faith may waver, and we don't experience victory. There are times when we don't feel as loved as maybe we once did, and we are unable to be conquerors. There are times when it feels like Satan is getting the better of us. The reason all of this happens isn't because Christ isn't all-powerful. It isn't because Christ doesn't love us as much now as He did then, And it isn't because God hasn't stopped being greater than the world. But the fact of the matter is we struggle with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We are in a spiritual battle. And spiritual battles cannot be won in the flesh. They can only be won as we are willing to walk in the Spirit. Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 21 say, For that which I do I allow not, for what I would that do I not. 
but what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, is it no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me? For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find in a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. You sense the struggle that's going on there. I think we can relate to what the Apostle Paul is writing there. In verse 24 of the same chapter, he writes, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? But then chapter 8 opens up with, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. See, it's a spiritual battle. And Paul, in that writing those struggles, it's something that we understand because we all have this flesh. If we're all honest in here tonight, we all battle sin. We have our shortcomings. We probably all have our besetting sins. And we understand that, but I'm afraid many times as children of God, we've yet to really understand the victory we can have in Christ. That we can have victory and that if we would just walk in the Spirit, we can get victory over this flesh. Listen, our flesh is wretched. You need to see it for what it is. It lusts after sin. It's prideful. The flesh likes evil. Jesus said the flesh profiteth nothing. Therefore, you cannot go to battle in the flesh. What we needed was a Savior who would be victorious over the flesh in order that He might be our perfect sacrifice. In order that He might shed His perfect blood so that we could be saved from sin, have our sins washed away. He took our place on the cross so that we could be reconciled to God. That's what we needed and that's what God did for us. Hallelujah, what a Savior. We needed a Savior. God gave us a Savior. And when we place our faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation, then the Spirit indwells us and we are quickened or we are made alive in the Spirit. And we cannot know victory while walking after this flesh. But we also cannot be defeated if we will walk in the Spirit. Therefore, if we're going to wage a good warfare and fight the good fight of faith, then we will have to acknowledge that this is a spiritual battle that we are in. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. With this in mind, while these pieces of armor Paul describes are written under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, they're physical pieces of armor, but we need to understand them spiritually. Paul was under house arrest when he was writing this epistle, along with several others. And many think he was likely using the Roman armor as the illustrative purpose for what he is speaking of, the, the battle gear that the Romans would wear when they would go fight, that he's using this to illustrate that point, this point here. And that may be. 
I don't know. But long before the Roman Empire existed, this idea of spiritual armor had already originated in the Old Testament. It was mentioned already in relation to our Lord, who was the original wearer of this armor, if you'll read it in context. And by the way, it's called the armor of God for a reason. It's his armor. And we find this mentioned in Isaiah 59, 17. And this may be what Paul had in mind that kind of kick-started seeing Roman armor and putting it all together. In Isaiah 59, 17, it says, For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and an helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing, and he was clad with zeal as a cloak. So when you study the armor of God, what you'll find in the Bible is sometimes there's different characteristics attributed to the same piece of armor that you'll study maybe here in Ephesians 6. You'll read about that same piece of armor over somewhere else, and it'll be listed a little bit differently. For example, here in our text, we read of the breastplate of righteousness. While over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 8, we read of the breastplate of faith and love. So you may read of a same piece of armor, but it be applied differently in a different letter that, that is written. So we don't have to get hung up so much on the actual pieces of armor, but what we really need to grasp is what the pieces of armor represent. We are concerned with having His truth, His righteousness, His peace, His faith, His salvation, His Word, His Spirit, and we pray to Him. The armor here that is described is simply to help us understand it all and to picture this fight that we are are in, that we are engaged in the spiritual world, and we are getting a physical illustration of it to help us understand what it is we're in. And I guess I'm just saying this. Don't think the Bible is contradicting itself when it says in Ephesians 6, 14, have your loins girt about with truth, while Isaiah 11:5 says, and righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins. There's not a contradiction here is all I'm saying, just different, just different in different letters. But certainly we're more concerned about the righteousness than we are being a breastplate or a girdle or whatever. You understand what I'm trying to say? Or am I confusing? <laughs> Look, it made sense when I was thinking about it. Now, be that as it may, while in Ephesians 6, we still apply each, we'll still try to apply each attribute as it relates to each piece of armor and what body part it protects. We'll try to do that as we go. For example, it's called the helmet of salvation, and we need our mind protected against the enemy's attacks regarding our salvation. So we'll try to do that as we go. I just wanted to, anyway, you know what? I'm just going to shut up before it gets worse. So that's an introduction to the armor of God we're about to study. And let's begin looking at each, each piece now, starting tonight. The first item I just mentioned is in verse 14. Having your loins girt about with truth. So I looked up loins. They are the space on each side of the spine between the lowest of the false ribs of the upper hip bones. Well, naturally, I had to look up what's a false rib. I mean, I'm not a medical, I've never been to medical school. And apparently it has something to do with which one's connected to the sternum and which ones are connected with cartilage. I don't know. I, somebody in the medical world was semi-shaking their head yes. So I don't know if I'm, do, if I'm making sense of all this, but the easiest way to envision having your loins girt about would be think of a, the placement of a belt. So why didn't you just say that? I don't know, because I looked it up, amen. <laughs> to use the imagery of where the belt is placed, then we could say that our core, 
our core area, we need to have the belt of truth wrapped all the way around us. Now, simply using the term belt really isn't sufficient to describe this piece of armor. It's called a girdle for a reason. We picture a belt holding up our pants, but this is much more than that. The military girdle of those days was made of heavy-duty materials, and it would be used in various ways. Perhaps the most common imagery that we would initially think of is upon that girdle, they would have a place for a sword, a dagger, some sort of weapon. Deuteronomy 141 says, Then ye answered and said unto me, We have sinned against the Lord, and we will go up and fight according to all that the Lord our God commanded us. And when ye had girded on every man his weapons of war, ye were ready to go up into the hill. So we see it's used to take up a weapon, an easier way to carry a weapon. 1 Samuel 25, 13, And David said unto his men, Gird ye on every man his sword. And they girded on every man his sword. And David also girded on his sword. And it's still the same way today. I remember when I was in the military, we called it a web belt or a tactical belt. But in many places in the world, it's still just called a girdle. And upon this web belt, you might attach a pistol, some, some magazine rounds, a canteen, your gas masks, some sort of a multi-tool, things of this nature. You might think of a police belt, a police girdle, where fastened to it might be a pistol, additional rounds, handcuffs, a taser, a police baton, and just stuff like that. In the Bible days, the military girdle was more than just a place to put weapons, though. It was actually designed beyond that, and it was designed to cover the portion of the abdomen that the breastplate did not extend down to. So picture a breastplate of righteousness, if you will, and then you'd have on this girdle that would help protect that area where the breastplate didn't extend all the way down. In fact, the girdle was often used to help secure the breastplate in place to give you a better fit and to keep it where it needed to be in battle. And it would just help protect the abdomen area. And so it was an integral piece of the soldier's armor. And likewise, to apply this to truth, truth is what protects the core of who we are, what we are, what we stand for. It's it's at our core that we have to have Truth. Truth is what binds us together. Truth is what keeps us secured in our proper place. Truth is what protects us against false doctrines and false teachers. Without the consistency of truth, people will fall to the adversary. Incidentally, let me take time to say this, we are not united together or united to God by our experiences. This is the problem with the charismatic movement where they make the experience the basis of their unity. For example, the experience of speaking in an unknown tongue or having some sort of vision is what binds us together because we've had an experience. You you understand what I'm saying? But what binds us together, what is our basis of of unity, is truth. We all have different experiences. But we all came to faith through the same Christ. May it happen differently. 
And so it is the truth that binds us together as a body, that binds us to God. It is the truth that we need at our core that we can always go back on and say, that's why I believe what I believe, because it is the truth of God's Word. So it's the basis of our faith. It's not experience, but it is truth. And if we get to the place where we think experience validates who we are, what we do, then we are wrong. Faith in Christ alone. Faith in His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. That is what binds us together. It is the truth which validates who we are and what it is we do. This is why when you find someone who has only known Christ at the emotional level, you see someone who is in trouble foundationally because he doesn't have his loins girt about with truth. So you find someone who is maybe in a church for a while and it's very emotionally based. Here's some things you might hear. I love that church. They have the greatest song service. Amen. Man, I love that church. They just have the best fellowship. It's a very emotional based unity. It's what's binding people together. And that's going to fail. Because without truth, when the enemy comes to attack, you're way more vulnerable to fall to the lies of the devil. And so we don't want to base anything off. Listen, we need to have fellowship. I'm thinking about preaching a message coming up here very soon on our need to not let COVID-19 ruin our after-service fellowship. Man, we listen, we used to stick around and talk like nobody's business. Don't let that stop. Amen? I'm all for fellowship. I'm all for the emotions. Amen! But that cannot be what binds us together. At our core, it has to be truth. So what is truth? Truth is the Word of God. Now, the Word of God is mentioned as the sword of the Spirit in verse 17. So I believe we see two different functions of the truth, of the Word of God, within the armor of God. Since verse 17 calls the Word of God the sword of the Spirit, we can see that there is an offensive side to the Word of God. But here, as a protective item, the girdle, it is also used to protect us from things as well. It will protect us from error. There's a time for the offensive sword. There is time for defending against falsehood. And sometimes you may not be able to tell the difference between the two. I'll give you an example. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, He answered each temptation recorded for us by protecting Himself in quoting the Word of God. He protected Himself against that temptation by quoting the Word of God. But we can also see how truth in that case not only was protecting, but it was also offensive because after the last temptation recorded, Satan departs, the Bible says, for a season. And so it's not only something that protects but it is something that also helps us offensively. We'll look at that when we get to verse 17. But tonight we're just talking about protection with truth. And if Jesus was girded about with truth, don't you reckon we need to be girded about with truth? We need to have our loins, our core, our stability, that which keeps us upright. We need to have that surrounded by the truth of God's Word at all times. Because there are false teachers who are waiting to entrap you. I know this is the Wednesday night crowd, so God bless you. But listen, there's still enemies out there trying to get us. 
Ephesians 4.14 says that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. They're out there. They're waiting to deceive you. 2 Peter 2, 1 and 2 says, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall also be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Now, the easiest way to identify falsehood is to know the truth. Amen? I can tell you what is not a 1997 Jeep Cherokee because I drive one. I can tell you very quickly. And I know that sounds silly, but if you'll immerse yourself in the truth, then you'll very easily be able to identify that which is false, that which is not truth. And so, know the truth, and I would tell you, I would warn you, before you feel the need to study false religions, to study false doctrines, that you first need to become firmly grounded to the core with the truth of God's Word. I know it's tempting. It's just like a new Christian. It's tempting to jump into Revelation. And it's tempting to want to go study other religions and other false doctrines. If you know the truth, then the truth will make you free, right? But if you don't know the truth and how it relates to you and your standing before God, then if you set off to study the world's religions and false teachings, which are also found under the banner of Christian in some cases, then you just might be led astray and carried about by every wind of doctrine because you're not grounded in the truth. This happens all too often to our young people who grow up in church but never got anchored to the core with truth. And for good reasons, they went off to attend a college, but that college may have been liberal-leaning, which most of them are, by the way. And now they're sitting through classes that have nothing to do with their major. That's why I hate college. I mean, if you want to go to college and learn something, learn something. But why in the world I had to learn to speak French for four different years is beyond me. To be a weatherman. Anyway, you end up taking classes that have nothing to do with what it is you're being trained to do. And some of those classes are going to be put there with the intent to, and they're not going to advertise it this way, but the way the enemy works is to get you to start to question that which you've grown up with. And now all of a sudden, this young person who has been in a good church under good preaching with a right Bible and all the rest is now thrust into this environment far away from home, far away from their church and their family, and now they're in this environment where they're being bombarded with falsehood. And if they don't have the belt of truth surrounding them at their core, then they're going to be tripped up. They're going to be led astray. They're going to be carried about. And the reason this happens is because they never got hungry for the truth. I'm not blaming the parents. I don't know what happened in that home. But children have got to get hungry for the truth. Now, we ought to encourage them to do that. We ought to foster that. We ought to make every means possible to make that happen. But listen, I cannot force anybody to digest the Word of God, right? 
And so I'm not, I'm not, listen, I'm not pinning that on parents. I'm saying children need to get hungry for the truth. And, and I think we do play a big role in that. Don't misunderstand me. But ultimately, it's their decision. Many good Christian kids left the safety of their home to attend a liberal college far away. They got indoctrinated with theology that was completely corrupt. Their moral compass was completely destroyed. Their understanding of God's word and, the, and God's will for their life, everything that they had been taught has now eroded. And I'm telling you, most of them do not recover. And it's all because they did not surround themselves with the truth of God's word. They let the Bible get dusty throughout the week. And they really only attended church because mom and dad attended church. But they never girded their loins with truth. Or to piggyback on Brother Long's message for graduation commencement, they didn't buy the truth. They never really owned it for themselves. But listen, I want to tell you, this type of scenario does not belong to the youth. It happens to adults. It happens to people of all ages. While colleges can certainly accelerate that experience, I've seen mom and dads, career professionals, grown adults fall victim to damnable doctrines because they never protected themselves with the truth of God's Word. And I'm talking about those who were raised in churches like this. Churches with solid biblical teaching. But still got off course by embracing false teaching which so clearly goes against the Bible. Maybe you've seen it too. What's the problem? Is it not that the truth of God's Word was something they never desired to be surrounded with? Because here's what I have discovered with the adults. I, I won't speak for the children. But for the adults that I have experienced that have decided to go astray with false teaching... Come to find out, all Christianity was to them was a Sunday morning religion. The Bible was set aside Monday through Saturday. It wasn't read, was never studied. And they are just vulnerable. You say, well, I come to church three times a week. Listen, you need to be in the Word of God every day. I cannot overstress that. And so people go astray because they don't surround themselves with truth. Don't be a dusty Bible Christian. You have to soak yourself in the Word of God. You need to read it. You need to heed it. You need to meditate upon it. You need to study it. And you need to memorize it. Not only do you need to be in the Word of God... But you need to be in a church which clearly teaches the truth without watering it down. The church should complement you being girded about with truth. And, and by me saying complement, I'm, I'm saying that because you ought to be taking the lead in your life for surrounding yourself with truth. Don't just let the pastor or the Sunday school teacher or whoever is in your life be the one that gives you all that you ever get fed. If I ate three times a week, I would not be losing plenty in 2020. And if all you ever do is come and get a meal three times a week, you're going to be a spiritually weak Christian. But you do need to be in a good Bible church. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul, he's writing to Timothy, and I, I was going to take you there and show you some things in Timothy, but then I was kind of getting off track. So I'm just going to read these to you in hopes of staying a little bit more focused. But it says in verses 3 and 4, 
As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went to Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables or endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith, so do. When Paul, talking to Timothy there, writing to Timothy about how to conduct church, he says that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. In other words, when we're talking about having a, a right kind of church to help us be girt about with truth, we never should allow false teachers or their false doctrines into the church. We are assembled together because we have a common bond of truth. And when we are assembled together in this kind of setting, look, it's one thing in a Sunday school class if you have a debate. I'm okay with that. But when we are gathered in this kind of setting, we're not going to open it up to false teachers. Do you understand what I'm trying to tell you? We have to be protected in here from falsehood. Or else it'll be a tinkling cymbal. It'll be an unknown sound. It'll, uh, it'll be strange. It won't, it won't sound right to our ears. Since I've been pastor, I've had to pull one person aside and I've had to say, you've got to stop teaching that in this church. I'll talk with you anytime you want. But you need to stop telling everybody in here that they're wrong because that's what we believe as a church to our core. It goes against our statements of faith. And I said, you just can't do that here. It was all good. I've seen one person leave because they didn't like the fact that I would not join up with those who teach a false doctrine in our community. And I hate when that happens. I don't want to see anybody leave. And I wrote a very nice letter encouraging them to come back. Our door is always open and all those things. But I cannot, as the pastor of this flock, allow false teaching and false doctrine to penetrate. It would be irresponsible of me to do that. It would be irresponsible of me to encourage you to join up yourselves with these groups that are out there that are parachurch organizations in our community that have no local church oversight, and those who are leading it are in churches that believe you have to speak in an unknown tongue in order to be saved, to tell you, you need to go be a part of this group. It's not right. Because at our core, we need to be surrounded with truth. And so I cannot in good faith tell you, go yoke up with another church that so blatantly contradicts the Word of God. You understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying they got to dot every I and cross every T the way we do. We know they don't do that. But I am saying that we're, what we stand on fundamentally at our core, I am not going to lead anybody into something that's wrong. So not only are the false teachers to be silenced, we see here. He, he tells them, teach no other doctrine. But in verse 4, speculation in the church should be silenced as well. Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions. There are, there are churches out there, even of our flavor, which are spending time on all kinds of conspiracy theories. I could send you to a YouTube video where the pastor of an independent Baptist church spent an hour and a half of the church service telling his congregation why the earth is flat. And I'm not even here to debate that. If you want to believe it's flat, God bless you. Just believe it's a circle. That's all I ask. That's what the Bible says. 
If you want to believe it's round, God bless you. But I'm not going to take church time and spend time on conspiracy theories that really have nothing to do with us walking with the Lord. Do you walk better with the Lord if you're walking on a flat surface as opposed to an oval? I don't know. You ever been to a church where, where all you got were answers to questions no one was asking? It's a great lesson. Can you tell me how to walk with God? I mean, we get hung up on all kinds of things. All kinds of soapbox issues. And to be frank with you, this is why a lot of people have left the Independent Baptist. Because we want to beat people over the head with stuff that they're not even asking questions about. They have nothing really to do with their walk with God. Sometimes you go into church and all you get is speculative subjects, conspiracy theories, and soapbox issues. And when you leave a church like that, you'll not walk out learning how to walk with God any better than you did when you came in. So our church must be about truth without speculation. We need to fill our Sunday school rooms. We need to fill our pulpits with people who will preach, thus saith the Lord. Now, I'm okay, like I said, in certain environments. Pastor used to always get us going in preacher boys class on heliocentric and geocentric on the universe. And, uh, yeah, you can imagine preacher leading that, brother, and how fun that was. We don't ever want to allow any other doctrine than the truth which is found in God's Word. We need to be about understanding God's Word and nothing which really ministers questions. Then as people of God, we, Paul wrote to Timothy, we are to be a church of truth. 1 Timothy 3.15 That thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. Who makes up the church? Is it not the believers? We are the pillar and the ground of truth. It has been entrusted to us in this earthen vessel that we might be able to dispense the word of God and we need to be people of truth. We are to uphold the truth, pillars of truth. We're to be a people who speak with absolute authority about who God is and about how you can come to know Him as your Savior. We also need to be a people of truth because if you're not girt about with truth, then when you're... Job moment comes in your life and you're put to the test, you're going to drop out. Because you don't have truth surrounding you. It's hard enough to get through those circumstances. So we got to have truth. We don't want anybody to fall by the wayside when testing comes. We all go through testing. But what will make the difference is those who have surrounded themselves with truth beforehand... Because you'll see people scramble when the testing comes. I've got to get truth. What, what do I need to know? What do I need to do? What does the Bible say? Look, you, had to, you should have had that figured out way back there. Amen. So, in order to stand, having our loins girt about with truth, we need to be in the Word of God. We need to be in a church of the Word of God, which properly preaches God's Word. So, I'll just ask you tonight in closing, are you surrounded by God's truth? When error comes knocking on your door with their white shirts and name tags. When error comes knocking on your door, will you be able to identify it as false? Not just because your church preaches against it, not just because your pastor preaches against it, but because you know the truth from God's Word that says this is wrong. Will you identify it as false doctrine because 
you know it doesn't line up with the Bible. You need to stand therefore, but stand on truth. You need to protect yourself with truth. And there's obviously much, much more we could say on this thought. I'll leave it there for now. Maybe next week we'll pick this thought back up. But this is a spiritual battle we are all in, and we all need the belt of truth.